Hey guys, I hope you're doing great today and I can't wait to bring you the show. But before I do, I just wanna make a quick request. If you're listening to the show and you're getting good value and you're enjoying the content and you feel that it's valuable, if you could just take a second and go and give me a rating and review in whatever platform you listen, whether it be Apple or Google or uh, Spotify, whatever it is, just go and give me a rating and review, that would be very appreciated. All right guys, let's dive in. It's hard to lose money on a flip. It really is, unless you just totally try to not do your due diligence and you know you ignore red flags and you don't follow the renovation and you hire bad contractors and then you enable them by paying them ahead. And you know, like you have to do a lot of things wrong to lose money on a flip. Now, is it easy to not make as much as you thought? Yeah, for sure. The market can change. You might have missed your numbers a little bit. And so you don't make as much as you thought. But if you planned on making $30,000 and you made 20, you know, that's a learning lesson for you. Like you should have made 30 and you made 20, but okay, you made 20. If you meant to make 20 and you make 10, okay. You know, you probably screwed up somewhere in your numbers or had, a, had an issue that you didn't foresee. Okay, fine. Even if you break even, it's like shame on you. You, you messed up your numbers probably really, really, really bad if you broke even, but it's hard to lose money unless you just ignore every common sense business acceptable practice in real estate. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, guys, we are here. It's a Thursday. I hope your week is going great. I am excited to be here with you. We have another great Q&A replay that I'm stoked to bring to you. Uh, we had uh, someone ask if, we, if you need a college degree for real estate or if you're in college, what's the best degree to get if you if you're ultimately want to be a real estate investor? So we talked about that. Uh, how to make offers on wholesaler deals. What does it mean when they say they need an offer by a certain date? Does that mean a full on like purchase agreement, you know, legal document, or are they looking for just a quick text with your number? Uh, that was something that came up and we talked about that. We talked about hiring a team, what that looks like, what that means, when do you do it? How do you do it? Who do you hire? When do you hire them? How much do you pay them? All that good stuff. And then uh, we talked about how to vet a deal. What makes a good deal? Not just the numbers, not just the ARV minus repairs, minus purchase price, all that, but like what else goes into determining whether or not you should want a property that you come across? So those are just some of the questions. We had a lot more. It was a lot of fun, guys. I can't wait to bring you this episode. It's a really, really good one, packed with cool information, good good conversations. Uh, we had a lot of interaction on the Q&A live that night. So uh, sit back and get ready. I've got a good one for you here, guys. Okay. We are live here, guys. Let me. Uh, I've got a new location that I'm working from. Hopefully you can all see me and hear me okay. Looking off to the side because that is literally where my monitor is now. Uh, but it looks like we're on. Looks like we're working here. Looks like it's all. Looks like it's all working. And the audio version, I'm going to cut out all that stammering. Uh, but you guys, if you're here live with me, you're kind of stuck with a little bit of that stammering. Um, my name is Mike Simmons. If you're new to this, if you've stumbled upon it, and uh, and you didn't know what this was. I'm a real estate investor here in Michigan. Uh, we do about 100 deals or so every year for the past six years. Um, we're doing over seven figures and uh, we haven't figured everything out, but we've got a nice system going. And I've, I've taught hundreds of people how to grow and scale their business as well. And I do this on Wednesdays every week at seven o'clock Eastern time, 4 p.m. Pacific. 
to try to answer questions for you guys um, for free. If you, all you have to do is log on and be here and I'll answer questions for you. Uh, I normally have a little bit different setup, a different background. I'm still in the same office, but I've created a few different spaces and I'm just trying to uh, utilize a different one here, more for my own amusement. I don't think anybody cares what's behind me, but uh, I'm just working out some kinks of my studio. So uh, you guys are my guinea pigs. But like I said, we're here every week, we do this. It's a lot of fun for me because I get to interact with people who maybe listen to my podcast, just our real estate, or people who are uh, following this page. And listen, I get it. Uh, hiring a mentor, hiring a coach, it can get pricey. Um, there's an investment of time and money there for a lot of a lot of us. And you know, if that's just not in the cards for you right now for whatever reason, this is a great place for you to come and get answers to your specific questions, get direct feedback from me and uh, and utilize it and implement it in your business. So I'm here for you to do that. I'm looking off to the side because we have questions every week that people send me ahead of time who are not going to be able to make this, but then they watch it afterward and I get their questions answered. If you're live with us right now and you have uh, questions or you'd like to like jump in and ask your questions, uh, those will take priority. So we'll answer live questions first, and then I'll I'll default to some of the ones that were sent in during the week. Uh, but normally that all those questions are sort of right here in front of me. Now they're off to the side. I'm looking at a monitor to my side. Uh, like I said, this is a different setup for me. So that's enough about me and my setup. Nobody cares. I get it. So let's dive into some questions. Like I said, if you're here live and you want to ask me something, type it into the chat, go ahead and ask questions, and I'll get those answered right here live for you. Because sometimes I have follow-up questions, right? You ask me a question, there's more information I need to give you a great answer. And so the best thing to do is type it in and let's let's dig into it. Okay. I'm going to do the first one here. This first question that was sent in to me um, says, this is kind of a long question and it's, uh, it's probably going to be a long answer, but uh, it says, hello, I am currently averaging around 15 to 20 deals a year. I have one active cold caller who calls niche data and does some bulk dialing. I really want to grow and would like to be doing one deal per week. We mainly flip the properties or uh, turn them into rentals. We have tried Facebook ads with limited success. I feel like we have hit a ceiling and it's been really hard to get past this amount of deals per year. Any recommendations on how to bring in more deals efficiently? What's your recommended steps to level up? Well, so there's this this could be this could be an answer that takes an hour, right? It could be a long conversation between this person because they're not new. They're doing 15 to 20 deals a year. That's that's not bad. That's nothing to sneeze at, but they want to level up, right? And I get that. And that that 15 to 20 deals is is kind of no man's land in my opinion because you're not a beginner, right? So you're doing deals and making money, but 15 to 20 flips or renovations a year is enough where if you don't have a team, you're probably running yourself ragged. It's probably really, really tough to keep up. So you're kind of at that point where you either need to like stay where you are or maybe shrink a little bit so it's a manageable workload or grow and scale so that you can bring people in and you have the cash flow and the revenue to do that. Um, so what? here's what I would say. You're doing cold calling, um, Facebook ads, limited success. I'm not surprised. Facebook ads. I, I don't know anybody who's done Facebook ads really, really, really successfully. Um, if you've done them and gotten some deals, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Facebook ads being a reliable, predictable, you know, flow of good opportunities. Um, I've tried it too a couple of times with very limited success myself. So I'm not real surprised and I don't put a lot of stock in Facebook for 
generating leads. But where I do put a lot of stock, because I personally have generated hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deals, closed deals where I got paid and money in the bank through two main sources. The two main sources where I've gotten virtually all of my deals, like over the last six years, and not all of them, but you know, virtually all of them, 80, 90% of them, has been from direct mail and uh, Google pay-per-click ads. Direct mail, in my opinion, if you want to level up and you want to kind of, if I were advising you to do what I think is probably the highest probability of success early, where you actually see uh, results and you start moving that needle, the soonest is probably direct mail. Now, I don't know where this question came from geographically in the United States. So it's hard for me to give you real, real good direction about how much mail you need to send and, and that kind of stuff. But I can tell you direct mail is directly, uh, no pun intended, direct mail is responsible primarily for not only the vast majority of deals that I have done over the last six years, but also the vast majority of deals of other real estate investors that have had a lot of success, like people who are doing 50, 100, 200 deals a year, most of their deals for most of those folks are coming from direct mail, most of them. Uh, now, in our business, in my business, specifically my real estate company, direct mail has kind of taken a backseat. When COVID hit, we had some unique challenges uh, around direct mail. And so we scaled way back and actually stopped it for quite a long time. And we started focusing more and finding that we were getting a better ROI from Google ads, pay-per-click. So those two avenues would be, if I were advising you, which I am, on how to scale up your business as it relates to revenue and leads, right? There's a lot of things that go into scaling your business, like people, um, building a team, like who do you hire? When do you hire them? How much you pay them? Like that all comes into it, right? But if we're just simply talking about the horsepower, you know, the gasoline that's going to blow this thing up, which are leads, offers, and deals. Like if we're talking about those specifically, then I would say direct mail would be the first thing I would advise you to do. Um, and past Q and A's, I've gone into pretty good depth about direct mail and what that should look like and how you should structure it. Uh, I've also been on bigger pockets recently, um, and I say recently, like within the last eighteen months. And if you look up that episode from the, uh, about 18 months ago, I went into pretty good detail about how to do direct mail successfully. So you can check that out too. Um, but I'll say it quickly here. If you're going to do direct mail, which I think you should, I think you should start with postcards. And I think postcards can be the answer, right? They don't perform exactly the same everywhere, but postcards are a good place to start because they're less expensive than letters. And the results and the ROI are usually as good or better than letters. But when it comes to postcards, you want to make sure that your message is clear, concise, and to the point. You're not making it overly confusing for the person because the person who's reading those, the, the client or the, you know, the avatar of the person who's going to be reading those direct mail pieces are going to be older folks. So font, you should make it bigger than is normally comfortable for your eyes, right? So Imagine someone with bad sight who has, you know, just it's blurry to try to see something close to their face. Um, I would go for 14, 16, 18 point font Arial, something very simple to read, nothing fancy. Um, give the clear call to action 
and use their name and the, the address of the property that they own that you're interested in, use that in the, um, in the message, okay? So in other words, a postcard should not say, dear resident or dear homeowner or current resident. All of those things mean it's junk mail. It's just, it's a clear sign, it's junk mail and it gets thrown away. <clears throat> but if I receive a piece of mail that says, hey, Mike, I'm interested in your property at, you know, 123 Elm Street, and I own a property at 123 Elm Street, and my name is Mike, I'm going to pay more attention to it because it, it's personalized. It's called variable data. So you're going to want to download lists, which it sounds like you're doing because you're doing cold calling. So you have lists and you probably have on those lists at least their name. I'm sure you have their phone number because you're dialing them. Hopefully you have their uh, address. And if you don't, then you can get that. You can skip trace and get someone's address or the address of their properties and write that and make it personal. Put it in the every mail piece should be different. It should have a different name and a different address that you're interested in. Big fonts, simple message clear call to action somewhere on that card that's very, very clear. If someone's standing over a garbage can, which they're probably going to be a lot of times with this mail, and they're reading it, you've got about two or three seconds to get to get their attention and to explain to them what you're trying to do on this card. And so they should see their name, they should see the address, and they should see the call to action within a couple of seconds, or it's going to go in the garbage. And, and nine times out of 10 or 95 times out of 100, it's going to go in the garbage because they're not selling their house, right? We're selling, we're mailing to like mass lists. And so, you know, most people aren't going to want to sell you their house. It's just odds. You know that from doing cold calling, most people you call do not sell you their house. It doesn't matter. It's a numbers game. We're just doing this in high volume so that we're kind of sorting out and sifting out the people who do want to sell their house. So that's, that's number one, direct mail. When it comes to pay-per-click, I'm not a pay-per-click like expert. I hire companies and I hire people that are very, very good at pay-per-click to handle that for me. But the reason I said direct mail would probably be the first thing I try to get yourself from 20 deals to you know 52 deals, one a week, right? Is because direct mail can usually move the needle faster for less money. Pay-per-click can be very expensive depending on where you live because pay-per-click is kind of a it's kind of a bid system or an auction system where you're putting up a certain amount of money. You're saying, I'm willing to spend X amount of dollars. And then you bid on keywords. So when people type in sell my house fast in you know, Wyoming, then, then you will come up if you're trying to find sellers in Wyoming. But if you don't have a lot of money to bid, other people can outbid you. And it's sort of like a it's an automated bid system. So you basically just tell them how much you're willing to spend per month or per week or per day. And they'll, the, the, the algorithm will use that to, to spend your money. But to do that effectively, to set that up in a profitable way, you need someone who knows what they're doing. And if you don't know what you're doing with Google AdWords, I don't suggest you try to figure it out and spend money learning. I would spend money with someone who knows what they're doing. But when you hire someone who knows what they're doing, the typical charge for that is anywhere between thousand and twenty five hundred, maybe three thousand dollars a month in just management fees. That's not bidding on any words. That's just you paying someone to manage your account. Um, I don't know that anybody does it for much less than a thousand a month. And I think three thousand is on the high end probably, but somewhere in there is what you're going to pay. And that's before you ever bid on anything. And then typically depending on your market, you know, if you really expect to outbid people and have a real like legitimate chance of getting leads from that source, you're probably going to need to put up a budget of, 
I don't know, four to six, maybe 8,000, depending on where you live. If you're in a really, really, really competitive market like San Diego or some places in Texas, you might have to spend, you know, 10 or 15,000 or at least have a budget of that so that you can actually make some headway there. So um, direct mail is a little faster. You can start a little slower. You can kind of ramp that up as you see the need. If you do, you know, if you send out 10,000 postcards in a month and the phone doesn't ring, you, you probably you, either something's wrong with your card or more likely you're not sending enough out. 10,000 is a lot. You should get calls. Um, but if you get tons of calls and your phone, your phone just starts ringing off the hook, you can calm that down a little bit and maybe send 5,000 the next month and see what happens, right? And you can kind of massage that number into your comfort level of how many calls you're going to receive. But, uh, you know, for the most part, when it comes to direct mail, I find uh, an average in, in kind of the Midwest area where I am, you know, you're looking at 20 to 30 calls before you get an actual really good lead of someone who has a home they want to sell and they're sort of realistic and you can get an appointment to go out there and talk to them. Like you're probably going to go through 20 calls on average, maybe, maybe 40, depending on how competitive it is. But, you know, we, we typically somewhere between 20 and 30 calls throughout the year it takes to get us uh, an appointment or a good lead where someone will let us come out and talk to them. So that's what direct mail looks like. Um, PPC, I would hire someone to do it, but I'll tell you, we're getting most of our leads now and most of our deals from PPC. And some of that's COVID, uh, a reaction from COVID in my area. And, and some of it is just a, ch- a little bit of a change in the industry where I am. So we're not doing nearly as much direct mail, but we're doing a ton of PPC and we have a budget for that. So if you really want to scale up from 15 to 20 and get to like 50 or more, direct mail, Google AdWords, I think are the two marketing channels that I would go after first. Okay. Bob Sleeves, what's up, my man? How you doing? A friend of mine, Bob, uh, do you include stop mailing me in your response rate calculation? So I I do, but I don't count it as a lead. So in my company, when someone calls from a direct mail piece, for example, there is something that we put in the category of a call. A call is when the phone rings. They can, if I pick up and they say, I hate you, I hope you never buy a house from anybody again. Uh, and I'll never sell you my house in a million years. I don't care what you offer me. It's not a lead, but it's a call. And so we track those. And then if we if someone calls and we talk to them and they're like, yeah, I've got a house. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in selling. Tell me more. Come out and talk to me. You know, anybody who has a house and they want to sell it, that's a lead. So those that's the difference. And the reason why we track the, you know, stop calling me or stop mailing me uh, why we track that is I always want to know what is my call to lead ratio? How many calls does it take for me to get a lead? And then how many leads does it take for me to get an appointment? How many appointments does it take to get a deal? How many deals do I have to do to reach my financial goals, right? It's part of the metric. It's, it's, a, it's a garbage thing, like a call, like someone who says, stop mailing me. It's complete, it's complete garbage. But if the number of calls, let's just say, for example, stays the same, but your leads drop in a month, then you've got a messaging problem, most likely, on your card. If the number of calls go up and your leads go up, you probably are mailing more. If the number of calls go down and the leads stay the same, that's a really good card. That's a good message because the goal is always less calls, more leads. Ideally, in a perfect world, every call is a lead. 
it's unattainable, I think, but every call being a lead is ideal. You never get that. But you want to know, because if your calls go up and your leads go down, you're wasting a lot of money on your mailings. Like you, you need to change your message, change something because you are more than likely agitating people. And when I say agitating, there are people out there, there's gurus and there's all over the internet, right? Where they, they'll tell you they have the postcard that is, has the best um, you know, call rate or whatever. They might even say leads kind of being deceptive, but they'll basically claim their card is like the magic card. You got to use this card if you want to get responses. And a lot of times what I find is those people with those cards they're putting, they're, they're getting you to put agitating messages on the card. And by agitating, I mean, the card will say last warning, urgent call now, like all these messages were, like I said, the client that we're, that we're, that we're trying to get in front of usually are elderly. And there's a million reasons why, but that's just who we end up buying from. If you buy 50 deals a year, my guess is um, from the last person, you know, that, you know, you know that the people you're buying from are older. So an agitating message is going to scare an old person, but it's going to, it's going to make them mad, right? You're, you're trying to scare them. And in, in, when it says urgent last warning and you say, Hey, this is Bob and I buy houses and I'd love to buy your house. If you're interested in selling, it's like, wait, what was urgent? What, what was the last chance you were telling me about? Oh, well, you know, it's just urgent because I really want to buy your house. Like, See how that sounds? It's it's agitating, like you're pissing people off. And so I discourage people from sending out cards with these false sense of emergency on them because all it ends up is being calls go up, right? If you agitate people enough and to take that to the 10th degree, um, Bob, if you take that to the 10th degree, if you put on a card, uh, I have your you know grandson hostage and call me or else you'll never see him again. You're going to get a lot of calls from old people, a lot of calls, but they're not going to want to sell you their house. You've upset them. You've scared them into calling you. And that's not, it's not good. So I track calls. So I know that I'm not sending out cards that are prompting people to call me, but for the wrong reasons. So long answer. Yes, I do. Uh, I do include those, include those in my response rate calculation, but as its own line item, calls, leads, appointments, contracts. Okay. Nick is next. Hey, Nick, how are you doing? Return, uh, return uh, person on the show here. I appreciate your great advice, Mike. All right. Thank you. I appreciate that too. If you are evaluating a flip deal, what is your process for deciding if it's a deal or not? <laughs> I've gone through this on past calls too, but I mean, it's, it's really not that hard, right? You can do the 70% rule, which is you take the asking price times 70% minus renovations and that's your offer price. Um, but you're not necessarily asking me whether or not, or how I come up with the offer. You want to know how I decide if it's, if it's a deal, if it's a good deal or not. So I think maybe this is not what you're asking and you can correct me, but I want things like what, when I look for comps on a property, like I'm going to give you kind of next level answer. I don't think you're looking for the basics like, you know, ARV minus, you know, uh, purchase price minus renovation minus holding costs like that. That's just a calculation that gets you to an offer that doesn't necessarily tell you if it's going to be a great deal. I think some of the things you want to look for to know whether or not a deal is going to be good or not. When you go to look for those comps, you got to remember if you're flipping the house, your end goal is to sell it. And your end goal is to come up with a property that has a value 
that is very defendable and very obvious to the person who's going to buy it or the realtor who's representing them. So what you don't want to do is buy a house and have the attitude. And I've heard this from a lot of people, and it's tempting in this market to say, I am going to set the price in this neighborhood. Meaning when people say that, they mean when I comp this thing out, all the other houses that are similar sold for $200,000, let's just say for, for sake of argument. But I am going to just crush this renovation. I am just going to do the best job on this house and I'm going to set the market and it's going to be 225 or 250. That's dangerous, right? A good deal is a property where the comps very, very, very clearly and very objectively support the price that you are using in your calculation when you decide whether or not you're going to buy it. In other words, you look at all the houses, you know, they're all, you know, the ones you're using for comps are, are renovated. They're okay. You know, some of them, maybe not as much and some of them a little bit better renovated and you're going to just do tip top renovation. And let's just say these houses are going for, you know, top house went for $200,000 and it was renovated. Maybe you think you can do a better renovation, but it sold for 200,000. It's within a half a mile. Uh, it has the same amount of bedrooms, same amount of bathrooms. Your house has a basement. This house has a basement. Your house has a two-car attached garage. This house has a two-car attached garage. It's sold for $200,000. you are going to do as good or better renovation, and you're planning on selling it for $200,000. That's beautiful. There, that is really hedging you against making a mistake. And I was just having a conversation today at lunch with someone, and they asked me, how does some, what happens when people lose money on a flip? And I said to him, uh, very honestly, it's actually kind of hard to lose money on a flip unless you don't run your numbers, you don't do your due diligence, or you, you ignore red flags. Something else that makes a really good flip is a house that's not on a main road, a house that isn't funky on the inside, the layout isn't funky, right? If it's funky and you can take walls out and redo the, the layout and it, and it fits within your budget and, it, and it, you can afford to do it and still make the money you want to make, great. But you don't want the house when people walk in, they go, wait, what? Why is there a bedroom right here? And how come there's not a door on the bathroom? Like all these like weird things, like you can add a door, I get it, right? But you don't want a house that has a layout that's funky. You don't want a house that looks completely different from all the other houses in the neighborhood, because that goes back to my first thing. It gets difficult to comp those houses because your house looks different. Now, if it looks different and it's because it's newer and nicer and better and objectively it's a nicer house and all the houses around it, it'll, it'll help when you sell it, but it's not necessarily going to be the biggest moneymaker because you probably spent more to get it. Right? So curb appeal is huge. Not being on a main road is huge. Making sure the comps that I'm using to, to come up with the value of the house are very, very similar or exactly the same would be really, really great. Um, you know, having a house that is renovated slightly better than the other houses is going to get you more, right? So, you know, for me, a good deal aside from the price I buy it for, because if you buy it low enough, like everything's a good deal, right? You buy a house that should retail for 200,000, you buy it for 130 and it needs, you know, 40 or 50,000 of renovation. That's not a good deal. I don't care how nice the house is, it's not a good deal. You're, you're not going to make any money. You might lose a little money. In fact, it's not, it's not good, right? You, you buy a house that retails for 200,000 and you bought it for 50 and it only needs 25 or 30 in work. That's a great deal. Right. So a great deal is really the purchase price 
and the sale price, like that and how much it needs to renovate. That's a great deal. But other than that, I want a house that when I go to sell it, the realtors or the buyers who are looking at it can easily clearly see that what I'm asking for it is justifiable. That's huge. And that the house doesn't have a funky layout. It's not on a main road. Like it has a basement if the houses in the neighborhood have a basement. So it kind of conforms with what people expect in the area. That's really it. People sometimes make house flipping out to be this really complicated Rubik's cube. And it's not, it's really not. And going back to the conversation I had today with a friend of mine, um, it's hard to lose money on a flip. It really is. Unless you just totally try to not do your due diligence and, you know, you ignore red flags and you don't follow the renovation and you hire bad contractors and then you enable them by paying them ahead. And, you know, like you have to do a lot of things wrong to lose money on a flip. Now, is it easy to not make as much as you thought? Yeah, for sure. The market can change. You might've missed your numbers a little bit. And so you don't make as much as you thought, but if you planned on making $30,000 and you make 20, you know, that's a learning lesson for you. Like you should have made 30 and you made 20, but okay, you made 20. If you meant to make 20 and you make 10, okay. You know, you probably screwed up somewhere in your numbers or had, a, had an issue that you didn't foresee. Okay, fine. Even if you break even, it's like shame on you. You you messed up your numbers probably really, really, really bad if you broke even, but it's hard to lose money unless you just ignore every common sense business acceptable practice in real estate. That's how you lose money. It's not easy. I've done it. And I'll tell you, when I did it, I ignored every red flag. I was arrogant and cocky about not having to check the numbers. Like I did everything wrong. I did everything wrong and I deserved to lose money, but I did like 10 things wrong to lose money. Now, not one thing or not some little thing that no one could have foreseen. Nope. It was totally my fault. And when people lose money in real estate, most times it's their fault. They're either undereducated, uninformed, ignorant of what they're supposed to do, or they ignore it because they've had so much success. And this is where I was. I had had so much success to that point. I kind of thought I couldn't fail. Like really, that sounds stupid now that I say it out loud, like years later, but I sort of had this mentality that I couldn't fail. And that's exactly when you fail, right? You stop checking your numbers. You stop double checking everything and you ignore red flags. So yeah, that's it, man. Good deal is usually what you buy for and what you can sell it for. All right, Tommy Clifford. What's up, Tommy? Follow up on postcard question. Do you have ideas on setting your postcards apart from direct mail marketers? Um, no, and I'll tell you, direct mail has less to do with the message than it does timing. Direct mail is timing. The reason why I, I tell people postcards are the way to go, it's not because postcards are more attractive or more impressive. In fact, they're not. They're less impressive than, a, than an actual letter, right? They're kind of like, are you kidding me? Like this card is what you want me to buy people's houses? Like this card, shouldn't I send them a nice letter with like information about me? And you know, you can really class it up in a letter because it's not, the message matters, okay? And I'll, I'll explain myself a little bit there, but the message matters less than timing, okay? So if you send me a handwritten letter and you include a, a, a printed out, glossy, you know, five by seven picture of your family. And, you know, it's just like the most mind-blowingly thoughtful, intelligent, well-written letter 
I've ever received to buy my house. If I'm not selling my house, I will not call you. Doesn't matter what you say. Doesn't matter how nice it is. Now, flip side of that is, if my wife comes home tomorrow and says, I'm divorcing you. We need to sell the house immediately. I want my equity or whatever, right? It's like this crazy, horrible situation in my life. And you send me this janky little card that says, hey, my name's Tommy and I'm an investor. I want to buy your house. I can close fast, hassle-free, and you don't have to make any repairs. And I can close on your timeline for cash. I'm calling Tommy because I just had a life situation where it is front of mind right now that I have to sell my house fast and you just gave me a solution. I'm going to call you. I didn't call the person who had the nice letter, sent me the glossy photo of his family and the dog and their newborn child. And it was well-written and they gave me a Starbucks $20 gift card. Like I didn't call them because that was six months ago. I wasn't selling. But right now I need to sell. I need to sell. I've got something going on in my life that makes me need to sell. I got this card. It wasn't that well-written. There was kind of a stain on it. It got folded in the mail. They misspelled words, but they want to buy my house now and I need to sell now, right? So the message matters less than the timing. To that end, I don't think you should send someone up. Like if you send me a card today, uh, which is December 8th, I think it is today. If you don't, you, you should send me a card with frequency. And so I tell people usually 30 to 60 days maximum, somewhere in there, 45 days is a good number. 30 days is fine. 60 is okay. Don't go beyond that. You need to send it at least every 30 to 60 days so that you hit me when I'm having a life moment where I need to sell my house. If you send it to me once a year, the chances of you getting me on the day or the week where my wife asked for the divorce, I lost my job, my job transferred me, whatever, right? Whatever the life situation is that's making me need to sell. If you send it to me once a year, once every six months, you're probably gonna miss it. The person who sends me that card that I see it, I throw it away. I see it, I throw it away. Every 30 days, see it, throw it away. See it, throw it away. Maybe me and my wife are having problems and I I see the writing on the wall. So maybe I take that card and throw it in my desk drawer. And then you send it to me the next month. I see it again. She just had the conversation yesterday with me. We're getting a divorce. Now I got this guy's card who keeps sending it to me. Now I've got it in my hand. I'm going to call him, right? So timing is everything in direct, everything in direct mail. People say you need to touch, you know, you need to touch someone seven times with seven different messages before they sell. It's not true, guys. It may be on average that you touch people seven times before they have a life event that makes them want to sell. But me sending you a card seven times in the course of eight or nine months, if I'm not selling, it doesn't matter. You can send me a thousand cards. I'm not buying or I'm not selling to you. So it's not a matter of convincing them to sell. It's hitting their hands when they need you, when they need to sell, when they have a problem that will be solved through selling their house. That's when you want your card to hit. Now, I said earlier in the call, You want to make sure that you're using a big font, you're using a a font that's easy to read, like Arial or Helvetica or something, you know, 14, 16, 18 point, very clear message, clear call to action, right? That's all good. If you're, for example, I know a lot of people who are veterans who are investors, sometimes they put, they add on there that they're a veteran of, of the military, right? 
that's good. That could be helpful. There's a lot of people that will see that. And that will, to, to your question is, do you do things to try to separate yourself? Sometimes that'll separate you. You put a picture of your family, you and your wife, your son, your daughter, your dog, whatever, your, your cat. Like sometimes that'll set you apart, but everything you do to set you yourself apart potentially will alienate somebody. So just realize that you're going to, you're going to, people are going to be warmed up to you if you're a veteran. Some people may not call you because you're a veteran. That's fine. Right. So you can separate yourself, but I say, whatever you do with a card or the letter, whatever you're doing, make it personal. Do not send a card from U.S. Homebuyers International. Like no one sells their house to U.S. Homebuyers International. They feel like they're going to get taken advantage of. It feels like a cold, heartless company. They buy, they sell their house to Tommy, the local investor who sent them a card and said, I'd love to talk to you about buying your house if you ever want to sell. Uh, I can buy for cash. You don't have to do any repairs. I'm looking to buy two houses this month. I hope one of them is yours, right? Very personal. Hey, I'm Tommy. That's what you do. Every time I've seen, including myself, you try to look more corporate with your card, response rate drops uh, and legitimate leads drop. People who want to have an appointment with you drop. Keep it simple. Keep it personal. Separate yourself with Better Business Bureau if that's something that you're a part of. You're a veteran. You've, you're a you know local family man or woman like that. That's great. Those those things will separate you. Um, but yeah, it's really about timing more than anything. Okay, uh, Bob, uh, how does your team consistently add buyers to your email? Dis, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, dispo. Um, so there's two ways that we've done it, three ways that we've done it in the past that have been successful and that we continue to do it. And if I'm being totally transparent, I'm not always the best at adding people to my buyers list. We have a very big buyers list, very strong, a lot of hedge funds and you know people who pay us way more than I even can calculate how they're affording to pay us, which is great. But so we don't always, like sometimes you in your business, you focus on the alligators closest to the boat. That alligator is rarely the closest to the boat uh, to us, for us. But the ways that we've done it in the past, and we do still do it now uh, sometimes, is there's like three really, really great ways of doing it that I've seen, right? There's probably more than this, but these are the three that I've used with success. Number one, going to local meetups and RIAs, shaking hands, getting to know who the players are in the market, and getting to know them a little bit. <clears throat> You're really doing that really just to find out who are the serious players. So that's one way. Another way is you can use uh, a list service like list source is who I use and who I've used in the past. This is how I blew my list up actually is using list source. And when I go into list source to try to find buyers, I'm looking, I'm pulling lists and my create my criteria are people who have purchased a house in the last six months did not get a mortgage. So they bought it for cash. They're non-owner occupied. They don't live there. And they bought it inside of an LLC, right? So let's go over that again. They bought it in the last six months. They bought it for cash. They don't live there. And they bought it inside of a company entity. That is a profile of a, of a buyer that you want on your list. That's an investor, right? So we get those lists. We download them. We skip trace them. We uh, send them a letter, not a postcard. Now, this is where you want a little bit better quality because you're trying to represent yourself as a legitimate business. See, in this case, Corporate and not not phony corporate, but being a little bit more on the professional side is where it's going to um, benefit you. 
because you're talking now to people who are potentially going to buy properties from you, right? So you don't necessarily want to come off as Tommy from the block kind of a thing. You know, you want to be more, more professional. So we send them a letter. We send them a letter that says, basically, we're investors. We come across uh, off-market properties all the time. We don't buy them all ourselves. I noticed that you purchased uh, what looked like an investment property in the last six months. I would love to be able to show you properties that we have off-market at deep discounts if you're interested in buying more properties like the one you just bought. And we send them that, we give them a link to go to, we give them a phone number or a call if they want to call and talk to us directly and kind of feel us out a little bit. We blew up our buyers list using that strategy. And then the third one is that we have uh, we have all the, all the uh, wholesalers in our market, we get on their lists and we track the properties that they're sending out to their buyers, which is we're, we're one of them, we're on their buyers list, right? We track those properties in a spreadsheet we track them three months later, we go into county records and we see who bought them, right? Those are active buyers in my market on my competitor's buyers list. Some of them may not be on my buyers list. We skip trace those folks who bought those houses and own them, right? We go through the records of the county and we send them a letter that says, hey, looks like you bought a, an investment property. We sell properties just like this. Would you like to see more off-market properties that are deeply discounted? The answer is yes, they're, they're investors, right? So that, that's the three ways that we've done it and that's how we've blown it up. And I think using those three methods, your buyer's list will, will blow up. And the idea here is a lot of people will tell you on the internet, oh, you don't need a big buyer's list because you're only selling to a handful of people. And that is totally true. We only sell to a small percentage of our buyer's list. But the reality is it's, it's like panning for gold. It's like, no, you don't need to pan eight tons of rocks right? You only need the gold pieces. And that's, that's brilliant. And if all the people from the gold rush would have just been smart enough to only pick up gold, right? Now it's, it's ridiculous. You have to pan through a lot of pebbles and rocks to find gold. Buyers list are the same way. You need to bring a lot, high volume of people on your buyers list so that you can hopefully out of those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who sign up to your buyers list, hopefully a handful of those, you know, a, a percentage of those will be actual hardcore active buyers with money who are going to buy your properties. You can always prune your list, right? There are these list, uh, these uh, email services like AWeber and MailChimp and you know some of these other places that, that will you can send out mail to your buyers. If someone hasn't opened up an email from you in six months or a year, you can delete them off the list, right? And so I'm not saying you need 10,000 people on your buyers list. You don't. You, you really don't want that many if you're only selling to you know, 20 people, but you get 10,000, you prune back to the only the people who are actively looking at your stuff and making offers. And then you continue to add to it. You just add it and prune. It's like, it's like a tree, right? It's growing or a bush. You're growing, you prune it. it, grows, you prune, grow, you prune. And so eventually all you have is roses. You don't have a lot of, you know, weeds and, and branches with nothing on them. Buyer's list is the exact same way. You need to grow it big. So you get the, you get the real dirt, you have the gold out of it. And you prune them back when you got a bunch of people who aren't responding and don't open up your accounts and prune them back. And then grow it again. Okay. Um, all right. We are at 40 minutes. Uh, I only, I think I only answered one question that was sent to me beforehand. So thanks guys for logging on live and answering questions. It is definitely the more fun way to go when it comes to these Q and A. So I appreciate you guys doing that. Come back, tell your friends, anybody who's in real estate and they want some help. I, 
I am part of a mastermind called Seven Figure Flipping. And to get into that group, you've got to spend $25,000 a year to get into that group, to get someone like me to help answer questions for you in your business. I'm doing it here for you on Wednesdays for 30 to 40 minutes for free. So it, you can't beat free, right? So tell your friends, log on, ask questions. I want to help you. We'll go as deep. And if you're live, I can ask questions and you can you can give me follow-up questions and I can ask qualifying questions and really get to the heart of things. And I think this is good for everyone listening to you because we replay this on my podcast on Just Start Real Estate Podcast. We replay these. So if you miss one, you can go back and listen and hear what people were asking and what I said. So um, take advantage of it. Uh, it's sometimes when things are free, people disregard them. You should not disregard this. <laughs> exactly, exactly what I would tell someone in the seven-figure flipping mastermind. If they ask me these questions, you're getting the same answers I would give them. They're just paying a lot more than you. So take advantage of this time. Guys, we're here every week at 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, 4 p.m. Pacific. If you want anything from me, if you want any any uh, more information on me and how I can help you more in depth, you can send me an email at mike at juststartrealestate.com and uh, we'll, we'll collaborate, get together and find out what I can do for you. So until next week, guys, uh, get out there and just go for it. Like don't, don't let anything hold you back. Don't let the holidays hold you back. Do not say I'll wait until after the new year. That's all garbage thinking. Get out there and do it right now. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay, until next time.